with Scott Allen. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in this beautiful world. I am your host, Scott J. Allen, and this is Phrenesis, Practical Wisdom for Leaders. Now, I am a professor of management at John Carroll University in Cleveland, Ohio, USA. In addition, I'm a husband and father of three teens. Now, this is a family endeavor. Will played the intro, Kate voiced the intro, and who knows, you may hear from Emily a little later. I'm also an author, entrepreneur, speaker, and co-founder of the Collegiate Leadership Competition. I love to travel, explore new places with family, and learn from others. Phronesis offers a smart, fast-paced discussion about all things leadership and followership, if we're honest. My guests are scholars and practitioners, and we cover relevant topics and incorporate practical tips designed to help you make a difference in how you lead and live. I am proud to share a few updates. According to Listen Notes, Phronesis is listed as among the top 3% of podcasts in the world because of you. So thank you. In addition, the podcast has two sponsors. First, Phronesis is the official podcast of the International Leadership Association, an association that is near and dear to my heart. ILA brings together leaders and those who teach, study, and develop leadership, advancing leadership knowledge and practice for a better world. Learn more at ila-net.org. My second sponsor is the Bowler College of Business at John Carroll University. At Bowler, we offer several advanced degrees and MBAs, and I'm confident that there's one that will fit your location, interests, and timeline. In fact, our online MBA is ranked as the number one in Ohio and number nine in the United States. We offer international study tours, a contemporary and forward-looking curriculum, and access to senior leaders and flagship organizations. Learn more at business.jcu.edu. You can find links to both sponsors in the show notes. Now, if you like what we're up to, please hit subscribe so you can stay current as we release new episodes each week. You can also share what we're up to with others, friends, colleagues, leaders, teams, students, and others you think will benefit. And now, today's show. Okay, everybody, welcome to this week's episode of Phrenesis. I hope you are doing well wherever you are in the world. This week, we have uh, a co-host, Jonathan Reams, and you have already listened to, most likely, if you haven't, you might want to go back and do that. You have already listened to our conversation about a book that he edited, Maturing Leadership, How Adult Development Impacts Leadership. And today, we have two authors with us. And so they wrote a chapter in this book. Jonathan is going to help drive the conversation, but I'm going to introduce our two authors. Uh, Harriet Thurber Rasmussen, EDD, has spent the last three decades coaching educational leaders and their systems toward greater capacity. Her practices embodies cutting-edge research around student learning, organizational effectiveness, and the socio-political aspects of executive leadership. A resident of beautiful Seattle, Washington, and a self-described adult development geek, she also teaches organizational leadership and research to doctoral students at Northeastern and Drexel University. Her most recent published works have focused on online learning, complexity, and change leadership. Harriet, I was in Seattle at SeaTac now just a couple weeks ago, and Rainier was out. It was so incredibly beautiful. Now, before we get into talking about that, we're going to go to Dr. Mohammed Rai. He is an independent leadership and organization development consultant. He has consulted on strategic planning and program evaluation. Additionally, he facilitated workshops on trust, adaptive leadership, immunity to change. Moreover, he's facilitated gatherings, meetings, and retreats for a variety of clients. 
He also served as programming chair for the Pacific Northwest Organizational Development Network, and he completed a PhD dissertation titled Development and Validation of the Adaptive Leadership with Authority Scale. Okay, we are excited to have the two of you here. You've written a chapter in this wonderful publication that Jonathan edited. And Jonathan, anything you want to say, sir, before we we jump into the deeper conversation? What's it like in Norway today? What's, it's, it's it's, like, you're living in the future right now. I, I, I don't know what it's like six hours ahead. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, no, it's a wonderful uh, kind of Indian summer day today. So I think what I'm most excited about here is, for me, the experience of engaging with all the different chapter authors brought so much richness and diversity, because often adult development is thought of in a kind of linear way or simplistic way. And the richness and robustness that each of the authors brought was really insightful and educational for me. So in this case, I can't quite remember how I got to know Muhammad and Harriet, but the idea of doing something in relation to trust really got my attention and stood out for me as something really relevant to talk about. And so I was really pleased with how they brought up the topic. And in that sense, what I'd be really curious to hear from each of you is, why did you want to go into the topic of trust in relation to adult development? Nice. Harriet, what do you think? Well, I'm trying to think about where I first started connecting it. And to be perfectly honest, it was a job talk. <laughs> I was looking for an angle. <laughs> and I thought, wow, I really love adult development. And trust for me is, is the driver of everything. So I played around with connecting relational trust, which that's my go-to definition of trust. But I played around with that and I thought, oh, this works. That's where it came, that intersection came for me. I didn't get the job, but it was a good talk. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it led set you on a new path. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. And Mo? So for me, I was introduced to uh, adaptive leadership in my master's program. And I was introduced to adult development in my master's program, but didn't pay attention to it at all. Then when I started my PhD, I dug really deep into adult development. I did the SOI training. I did the immunity to change. And around 2014, I co-facilitated a workshop on trust with a friend uh, using the Thin Book of Trust framework, which is in some ways similar. So that. It almost goes back eight or nine years now that I've been interested in trust. So when Harriet suggested we write a book chapter together, I was like, yes, trust, adaptive leadership, and adult development. It's like this trifecta. And and one of the things that I noticed that you guys did in the chapter is you had a, a nice simple thing of there's the context, the glue, and the driver. Maybe we could just start there. How did you conceptualize that as kind of three markers for how you wanted to approach this. I am the kind of writer who uh, writes by the seat of my pants. And so I will start writing and things form as I write. And I was writing, I was like, okay, I'm going to talk about adaptive leadership. That seems like, and then all of a sudden the words came to me. So mm. that 
that was not a predetermined set of ideas. But in thinking about how do these work together, it came that way. I, I think it works because if you think about the context, we are talking about leadership, right? You can use trust in any context, but we're talking specifically about leading. We trust is the glue that holds everything together. So we're using adult development to accelerate the development of trust. So understanding how people approach the world, their paradigm, their sense-making allows you to clue into that if you think about that when you're trying to build trust. Mohammed, do you have anything you want to add? Harriet created the structure, but it, it jived in really well with like how I think about the topic that the context is you have adaptive leadership, you want to create a holding environment, and what do you do to create it using adult development? The adult holding environment needs trust. So that's how things mix together. So one of the things that might be helpful, because most of the listeners are familiar with adaptive leadership, trust is more generic, but you have a specific model and way that you've been approaching. Could you say a little bit about how you've conceptualized and, and worked with trust? Well, the particular framework that we use for this chapter is called relational trust. And we took it from some work of uh, Brake and Schneider, who did research back in the early 2000s, late 1990s on urban elementary schools and how trust form it formed. And so they came out with some key elements that really resonated with me and my work with educational leaders over the past 20 years. I use these all the time. So this particular framework of trust starts with interpersonal work, the caring, right? Mm. So people need to know that you care about them if you want them to trust you. The second element that this framework uses is credibility. People need to know that you kind of know what you're talking about. They need to know that you're worthy of following. Respect is the third element. And respect in this context is very specifically about, do you respect me enough to listen to what I have to say? Hmm. Do I matter? Do my opinions matter? And then the fourth is integrity. Do I do what I say I'm going to do? If I say this and then I do something else, that kills trust. So the nice thing about this framework is there's only four <laughs> elements. You can remember it. And I have never seen... Now, they work in concert. They're all important. But they make sense. They're logical. They're easy to remember. And they they cover a wide range of leadership roles. I've never heard of this. And so I'm really, really intrigued. I think it's it's a, a wonderful framing of how we build trust with others. I also want to jump in and say that one of the reasons why we wanted to bring in trust is because Heifetz himself and his colleagues bring it up. He talks about using vertical trust, the trust with the leaders and the authority structure to enhance the holding environment. And he also talks about lateral trust uh, and uh, building trust uh, kind of at the same level with colleagues and others. So it's not like, you know, Heifetz ignored trust. He actually made it a central part, and we wanted to expand on that with the framework. So that gives me the uh, the thought and the question that I had was, is this like you need trust as like social capital to be able to spend when you're asking people to endure losses? Mm. 
in in the chapter Harriet does uh, she wrote that part which is linking exactly with the social capital theory so the more social capital you have the more you can ask people for sacrifices the stronger the holding environment I think it also makes sense to understand the context of the holding environment which is a key element of adaptive leadership and the holding environment comes from this basic idea that maternal we are being held it means you're in a safe place. So this is a key aspect of adaptive leadership practices is to create a space where people can go through the challenges of change and being and leading. HIFITS and adaptive leadership recognizes that when you lead, you are going to disappoint people. Change is hard. Loss is challenging. And change in HIFITS terms equals loss. So you can't ask people to give something up unless they trust that they will be okay. So the holding environment is the place in which people go through those challenges. And trust is what allows people to be there and and to accept the losses. And for listeners who are not familiar with the term holding environment, I believe we're going back to Winnicott. And what we'll do is we will go ahead and place some notes in the show notes, uh, some links in the show notes, so that you can explore that whole concept of a holding environment a little bit more. But basically, it's a safe space to learn, to grow, to develop. And so I think it's a really core concept. Jonathan? Yeah, so I think this makes a really interesting transition because in terms of Robert Keegan's adult development model, which you guys use in the chapter, he talks about kind of the cultures of embeddedness or the holding environment. What is holding people at different stages or phases of their evolution of meaning making? And what I found really interesting was how you were able to kind of intersect these and say, well, what does trust mean to people at different stages of development? So I think this would be a great time to kind of dive into the deep end here of that. So cool. So what does trust mean? Depending on my level of mental complexity, what does trust mean? So I'll do a quick recap of the different levels of the adult development, according to Keegan. The first one is the instrumental mind. This is kind of black or white. What's in it for me? Very concrete. So this is kind of equivalent to somebody uh, who's 13, 14 years old. You know, I have one of those at home. Yes, yes. <laughs> but as an adult, as an adult, not as. So when you say 45 going on 14, yes. that's what you mean when somebody has an instrumental mind when they are an, uh, an adult and they have not yet internalized society's rules. Uh, so it's going back to what's in it for me. Next one, it's called the third order of mind, because there is one before the the instrumental mind, which is for young children. Uh, Keegan extended on Piaget's work. So the adult stages are three, four, five. So the third stage is the socialized mind. In it, you kind of internalize society's rule. You look for external authority. Your opinion of yourself is... I wouldn't say non-existent, but it's easily affected by others. So you lack self-confidence. You don't have the authority to make decisions. You avoid external and internal conflict. For the fourth order of mind, the self-authoring mind, 
you have your own authority, so you don't care as much about other people's opinion. Yes, you take them into consideration, but you're the mass you're the master of your own ship. And you're more comfortable with conflict, slightly more comfortable with ambiguity. Unfortunately, you're somewhat attached to your own opinions. And finally, in the self-transforming stage, not only do you have an opinion or opinions, you're not attached to them anymore. You have a flexible identity. You're post-ideological. You're postmodern. Keegan borrowed a lot from when he looked at different levels of development. He thought pre-modern, modern, postmodern, and thought that postmodern was the top of the developmental pyramid. When you think self-transforming, constantly able to uh, question their own assumptions, triple-loop learning, that sort of thing. And Harriet, talk about now trust at these different levels. That's really fascinating that the two of you have applied this. Well, this is what we found so interesting is that thinking about and and knowing that that we don't know where other people are developmentally. Not really. I mean, we form impressions, but the the actual task of determining someone's developmental level is is cumbersome and it's hard. But make space for people so that you are um, so that wherever they are developmentally, they can relate. So mm. you build trust, right? So it isn't that you say this person is instrumental and therefore you are going to use these pieces. But but what we found really interesting was to look at. So for example, with the L- instrumental person, where they're really unable to see the world outside of their own needs. The driver, we think, we argue, would be personal regard, would be Mm. as long as I'm going to let you know that I really care about you. And as long as I'm asking questions, I care about your family, I'm making sure we believe that someone in an instrumental mindset um, might be more likely to follow than using another strategy. That's going to matter more, right? Interesting. Matter to everybody, right? Yeah. If you're a socialized individual, right, the second order, um, you're really looking for authority that comes outside of yourself. Hmm. So for the leader to establish credibility and say, I I actually do know what I'm talking about. And that looks (laughs) that can take a variety of forms. Sometimes if I'm doing a presentation, I'll do a little bit of name dropping right in that opening. Just so people just know, Okay, she does know some people. Hmm. But. Establishing credibility to the socialized individual says, okay, you know what you're talking about. I can follow you, right? To the self-authored individual, then you're looking at someone, wait a minute, I know what I know, and I want to know that you are listening to me. I want to participate. So in that sense, we would say that respect would be the driver, because as long as you are listening to me, if I know you're listening to me, and you respect me, then I will follow you. Well, I love how you're thinking about this. It reminds me, Jonathan, I don't know if any of you have read Jennifer Garvey Berger's book, Changing on the Job, but she she talks about when she's designing even workshops and presentations, she will design for different levels of mental complexity. And just and how you just described that, Harriet, of can I design my communications? Can I design my trust building in a way that is going to, you know, if it is that self-authored individual, honoring their perspectives, honoring their experience, honoring their outlook, 
but that might be something that's totally different if it's someone who is at the instrumental mind, right? Exactly, exactly. And when you get to the self-transforming individual, we would maintain that integrity would matter. Changing on the job changed my world. That was not my introduction to AD, but it framed my dissertation. It has framed, and you'll see her work spread throughout our chapter. So one of the things that that I heard you sort of allude to in that description of how trust is related to the different levels is that it's not that each of these is unique only to that level. I think somebody at any level wants to know that you care about them or wants to be listened to in a certain way. But the, there is this kind of transcend and include element that for the instrumental mind, this is in the foreground more and the others are maybe more in the background. Is, is that how you look at it? Well, I can jump in. Uh, I, in the chapter, we did say that these things it's interconnect. But I was, as I was rereading the chapter, I was thinking, this is to some degree like the love, the five love languages. You have your primary one and then your secondary one. So for each level of development, the one we mentioned is the primary probably, but the secondary ones also play a role. I would I would agree. I try to why most of my work now is working with students. And the first thing I make sure that they know I care about them. So that sets a culture. That being said, that goes only so far if what they really want from me is I want to engage. I want I want intellectual stimulation. I want to know what you think. I want to know that you are listening to me. So I use caring, personal regard as my go-to automatic, not when I'm presenting for a big group, but certainly on a one-to-one basis. And leading happens with students, it happens in organizations, it happens in communities, it happens in families. It's not just about a formal role. So so as you describe this, I, I have this question in the back of my mind that in terms of how leaders might apply this lens, that if they are recognizing that they need to provide a holding environment for a community of stakeholders to do adaptive work, this community will be likely at very diverse developmental levels among them. Great, yeah. Uh, How might a leader use a model like this in thinking about that challenge? I think, you know, if you're dealing with a fairly large group, um, you have to kind of provide something for everybody. So, you know, you, you might not be able to get too individualized with your approach, but if there is an opportunity to show, to show care to somebody, like noticing they're, you know, wearing a neck collar uh, or asking how their day is or whatever. So there are opportunities in every meeting to do check-in, for example. Check-in shows care, uh, shows you're listening. So uh, for me, I'm, I'm almost religious about doing check-in and doing it properly because a lot of the time people don't do it properly. So even in a large group, if you're doing a retreat, you know, there is an open space, for example, the, the, the first two hours are spent having people go around the circle. So showing respect also, I, I did a facilitation once and there was an individual from a different culture 
where uh, you don't talk just for half, uh, 30 seconds. So I allowed him to go all the way to 10 minutes, so showing respect. So, you know, you try to give everybody, you have to guess sometimes, but you try to provide everybody with something. And I'd like to take that, exactly, that's a, that, um, I'd like to take that to a, a bigger uh, idea, which is validation. I think everything we are talking about here is that we are validating who people are, where they are, what they need in order to get something done, in order to move work forward. I have been thinking about this today. I have four, four boys, four men, and they could not be more different. I have a politician. I have a historian. I have a playwright. And I have a cowboy. And they are all comfortable in their own skin. And so that's diversity. And I was thinking today about how they somehow were validated. So wherever they are, wherever they are developmentally, wherever people are, is say, I get you. And that's the first thing. Otherwise, if you don't validate people, defenses go up immediately and leader has a much tougher job ahead. Trust can help you get that. It mm. allows you to get into that window and say, yeah, you matter. I'm going to listen to you. Wherever you're coming from, you matter. Something that comes to mind for me right now is that I, I've been interacting with a, a current student that I have that is an older student and actually owns an organization. And the the back and forth that we have is a little bit different than maybe that student who is at maybe 23. And I kind of acknowledge it today. I said, I hope my poking is okay because I love having this conversation and I expect the same back from you. Tell me about your experiences. Tell me about what you've, what you've gone through as a leader and how you're making sense of these things. Because I don't know that either one of us are going to be right, but we can explore together. And this is an individual probably more at that self-authoring stage who walks in with some perspectives, walks in with some opinions about certain things, but that doesn't mean we can't explore. Now, as the authority figure, quote unquote, I could approach that much differently and be insecure about that individual's experiences, and it would be a completely different interchange. I mean, is that... Does that capture in some ways the spirit? Jonathan, you have your hand up. What do you think? <laughs> why, yeah. why am I well, co-hosting with him? Is that what you're thinking right now? <laughs> no, the, the question that came up in my mind is, uh, I think we're talking a lot now about how we're using our understanding of the kind of range of human experience to tap into different components of trust. And something yeah. you said earlier, Mo, I think was reminding me of listening to Obama's initial inaugural address. And I remember in one paragraph, I heard him hit four different developmental levels in terms of the kind of values he was speaking to. So the, the importance of being adept at having a, a large span and being agile and kind of being sensitive to what is needed in a given moment. So I think that's it's great the way we've kind of set that up. Now I'm curious about what happens when you need to spend some of that social capital and make an ask against that trust. 
Let me jump back to what, with that, hold that. Let me jump back to what Scott was talking about, because I think there's a connection here. What you're describing, Scott, in your communication with your student, uh, first of all, you're describing an adaptive scenario where there's no right answer here. We're learning. You're describing a leader, a professor, whatever role you're playing as in the game, learning from your, be your followers, be your stakeholders. So let's move then to Jonathan's point. You spend capital when you have a relationship. Mm. You get a relationship through trust. So I can so I can push students harder that the poking you were talking about, Scott, when they know I care, when I have listened to them. I have asked students to spend a weekend entirely revising a proposal. How do I do that? How do I spend that capital with somebody who has been working as hard as they know how to do? It's because I was with them. It's because they knew I cared about them. And I listened to their opinion. So you spend social capital when you have earned it. And you earn it through trust. Mm. It's really well said. I I, I, th- I agree. I've had that similar experience, Harriet, where if I have spent the time to build the relationship and there's a trusting relationship there, we can almost move move the, uh, John Worgen, and, and he was taking it from maybe, is it Vygotsky? Is that correct? Did I say that correctly, Jonathan? Yes, Vygotsky, <laughs> yes. You know, the zone of proximal development, if that's, if that's I don't know that that was okay. exactly. Yeah. But you can almost move that zone if there's trust. You can move that zone a little bit further, potentially, if there's that trust. Well, I think this gets to part of what I experience myself, and I think that you're alluding to, Harriet, is Keegan talks about how do we support development and adaptive work for any group of stakeholders is often about developmental work. How do we help them evolve their values, their meaning making, and so on? And that happens through a combination of challenge and support. And so the support comes through building that trust. They feel supported, And then you can challenge them. And I know exactly what you're saying, Harriet. I challenge my students incredibly hard at times, but I have to build them up to the point where I can do that. So this struggle, the idea of struggle and adaptive work and social capital and trust and learning. I have a student who she's she's a baby. She's young. I don't know, she's 25 maybe. I don't know, why are you in this program? She's, She's plenty smart. And I'm pushing her to struggle, to understand, to grapple with things that don't make sense to her yet. She stays in the game because we have spent time together. She is what I would, I don't think she could possibly be self-authored yet. Um, She's probably highly socialized or, but the word she struggles a lot and she uses the word struggle. I say struggle's good. Struggle's when you're learning. Yeah. You can't approach adaptive work without assuming struggle. Because we're pushing the boundaries of what we know. Yep. And leaders have to lead that. And that's where that's where trust comes in. Mohammed, as we kind of begin to wind down, are there some other things that you'd like to bring into the to the conversation? Yes, two things. The first one is when we're trying to uh, show respect or care or any of these things, to target the the other person's developmental level, we also have to do it in a culturally specific way. For example, in the US, 
you ask somebody, oh, how was your weekend? And in Jordan, that's a meaningless question. Mm. <laughs> Most people just visit family. You know, it's, it's all around the family, kind of like Latino culture. So you have to be really culturally aware of how do you show care in the specific culture that I'm in mm. and respect and all this. So, you know, in Japanese culture, showing respect might show, show up very differently than in U.S. culture. So there's the cultural aspect of how do you apply these things. The other one is I have been thinking about the chapter. In the chapter, we said basically, and also Jennifer Garvey Berger said the same thing, that you know it's helpful for managers to understand development. And having thought about that, yes, it's really helpful, but it's also a two-edged sword. And last week, I did an ICF, a workshop for ICF, International Coaching Federation, the local chapter, I did a, a workshop around spiral dynamics and adult development and coaching. And basically, I told the, co the coaches, okay, don't get too excited and go applying adult development to your coaches. Go apply it to yourself because <laughs> that's where you need to start. It's really dangerous. Like I spent for like three years just focused on adult development as far as a study and they still read all the books and all this and I got a chapter published but you know getting into that mindset uh, you know this person is socialized mind this person is self-authoring it's a bit more complicated so I think that that brings me to one of the main points too that I think this and many of the other chapters do a good job of going beyond the simplistic, descriptions of these models of adult development and getting into the real nitty-gritty nuances because they are much more complex models um, and we'll be able to cover a number of those kind of topics in this series. I've been thinking about what Mo just said and uh, something that I've been investigating lately, another chapter I'm working on, was the idea of humility and leadership. And all of these pieces of trust, building trust, require a leader to adopt a status of humility and of not knowing. Can't know. You can't know what other people need until you find out. So there is this a stance or a disposition of, uh, I don't know, as I said, I'm, I'm working on humility. I think that falls into play here. I've been one of my projects I've worked working on recently is to, is to be an advisor to a a module, a learning module for a complex topic where a lot of professionals will be taking it. And we've been thinking about in the in the design of it, how do you talk to somebody who's been in the field for 30 years and help them let go of what they know long enough to learn something? Mm. This is the biggest challenge with leaders, especially leaders who are self-authored themselves, right? How do you let go of what you know long enough to engage authentically with people and learn what they need? So that's where I've been going with, with this as we've been talking. Well, and I think that that epitomizes how you build trust. Yep. Whether, whatever developmental level a person might be at, there is something about approaching them with that humility and being present with them that will be a cornerstone of that relationship. As we begin to wind down, what I would love to do is, Mo and Harriet, from each one of you, 
what's something that's caught your attention recently that you've that you've read or listened to? Maybe it's something you've been streaming. It could have to do with this topic that we've just discussed. It may have nothing to do with it. And Jonathan, I'm going to ask you this every time. <laughs> what is a seminal text that people can go to to learn more about adult development, in your opinion? So, Mo, what's something that's caught your attention recently? Well, I'm reading Jennifer Garvey Burgers and Carolyn Coughlin. I don't know if that's the correct way of pronouncing the name. The new book that came out a couple of weeks ago, Unleashing Your Complexity Genius. And um, it's interesting because it focuses on, I'm not sure if you're familiar with integral life practice. So how do you breathe? How do you walk? Integral life practice is basically practices that deal with every aspect of the person. So mind, body, heart, spirit, etc. So I didn't finish the book, but she was talking about walking, physical activity, breathing. We take our breath for granted, uh, noticing. So kind of similar to mindfulness. I'm a long-term meditator. So I was like, oh, ding, ding, ding. And then she talked about in order for leaders to deal with complexity, they have to shift their nervous system to the parasympathetic system, which is the opposite of the sympathetic uh, nervous system, which is the fight, flight, freeze response. And this jives in with my own doctoral research when I found that one of the top 10 things that were effective for leaders was maintaining a cool head mm. in the face of adaptive change. So, you know, how do you, what do you do to maintain that cool head? What do you do specifically to shift to that parasympathetic nervous system? And she does provide a few practices that are really helpful. Very interesting. Okay, I'll put that in the show notes for sure. Harriet, how about you? Do put that. I just read that. I just actually assigned reading to my leadership class that starts uh, in a few weeks. So great book. It's funny that you asked that. Uh, mostly right now I'm reading dissertations. <laughs> <laughs> Like, well, what? listeners don't want to read dissertations, I promise <laughs> you. <laughs> I'm to read. And I'm listening to your podcast now. Uh, uh, but I am reading The H Factor. As I said, I'm working on this right now. I'm working on um, I'm working on a chapter called Professorial Humility. Okay. That'll okay. be in a, a book on uh, leaderful pedagogy. That's my main area of study right now. And, um, and your podcast. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, the H factor for listeners, if you have not listened to the conversation with Matt Sochik, uh, that might be an interesting episode to check out. I'll put it in the show notes and you can check out his work as well. That was really an interesting conversation. I had never really gone down that road of a conversation about humility. And so that was a lot of fun. Definitely. Oh. It was beautiful timing. I've been using um, Humble Inquiry as my basis from a Shine's book. And then I listened to your podcast. I went, oh, cool. The H back. So I'm reading it. <laughs> awesome. And Jonathan, give us a seminal work, sir. To be honest, my bedtime reading right now, I can't believe I never got to this, or maybe I was never ready for it till now, but I'm just about to finish Keegan's The Evolving Self. Ah. Uh. And what I realized is it's really helped me understand that the fundamental kind of genius of how Keegan has integrated Piaget with Freud and said, what is behind both of those? What is something more fundamental? 
And this has really helped me understand the later works that he's done in a much more rich way. Well, I will put that in the show notes as well. That's for sure a foundational text for anyone who's interested in this topic. Okay, so Muhammad, Harriet, thank you for your good work. Thank you for helping us think about how adaptive leadership, trust, and adult development converge in very, very important ways. I think it's incredible. And to you, Jonathan, thank you for another episode co-hosting. And this is just a fun series where we can explore a lot of different nooks and crannies of that intersection of adult development and leadership, but also just uh, adult development, leadership, and things like trust or things like humility, right? Fun stuff. So everyone have a wonderful day. Thank you so much. Thanks for all of you who are checking in from wherever you are in the world and be well. I really enjoyed the title of this episode, The Diverse Drivers of Trust. Jonathan, a couple reflections on this conversation. Having listened back to it now, what stood out for you? I think this notion of what I call the kind of trifecta of trust that that you have trust, adult development, and adaptive leadership, and and the way they were able to kind of weave how those interrelate gave me a sense of this diversity of what is really supporting and influencing the experience of trust. I think there were some components of that. You know, the holding environment really requires trust. It isn't maybe elaborated as much in Hyphus, but here they really dug into that more. And related to that is the notion of social capital theory, that you earn social capital through trust. And that's something that you can then spend again later when you need to ask people to take risks. Mm. What holds people, the notion of holding environments in terms of then how Keegan talks about holding environments in adult development theory, I think was really interesting to go into, you know, what creates trust at these different developmental levels? How is the holding environment need to have integrity to generate trust? And how does that evolve and mature? I think that was quite fascinating. These notion of different drivers, so there's care, validation, And then how there's a culturally contextual element, you know, how do you show you care will look different in different environments. Yes. And that trust really requires humility from the leader. That humility and that awareness that as the context shifts, we too need to shift. We too need to learn. In the previous episode, I talked about that learning as a way of being but we need to shift and adjust as well. But I love that observation that you made of what does trust look like at these different levels of development? It's a fascinating question. A lot of opportunity for exploration there. We could go on and on about it. But we (laughs) were being so disciplined here. (laughs) Until next week. Everyone, take care. Be well. Thank you so much for checking in, as always. You have just finished another episode of Practical Wisdom for Leaders with Scott Allen. To contact me, visit www.scottjallen.net or send me a note at scott at scottjallen.net. I can also be found on Twitter, 
and LinkedIn. So let's connect. Now, if you have feedback, I'd love to hear it. And as always, thank you so much for listening. One final nod to our sponsors, the International Leadership Association and the Bowler College of Business at John Carroll University. And now, here's Kate's twin sister, Emily, with the outro. You've been listening to Phronesis, Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen.